0: If you look at a travel brochure or an ad for a travel company in a slick magazine and you see this uh, breathtaking photo that just has these eye-popping colors and you think, wow, that's not like anything I've ever seen, it's probably not what the photographer saw either.
1: Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryants, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Oh, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, uh, on previous podcasts, we did a little series on photography, talking about some of the technical aspects of shooting and your expertise in that area. I want to talk more about photography again, and your interest in that, and I want to start with talking about, well, what I might call more the human element. How do you shoot? What is your experience like when you go out, and what are you looking for when you're doing this?
0: Well, there are different things, depending on what I'm shooting, and, uh... There's uh, different cameras sometimes, different settings for sure, whether I need a tripod or not. So it all depends on the subject matter. The most demanding things I don't do. One is sports, where getting people in very rapid motion and moving in unpredictable directions and getting them nice and sharp (laughs) is a talent I'm not. Well, for one thing, I don't really care for spectator sports, and so it would be boring for me anyway, but uh, it requires a lot of skill. And uh, The other one is something like portrait photography. I've done a limited amount of it for friends and family, but it's always a bit of a trial. Um, lighting becomes a very important issue there, and again, uh, the more experience and training you have, the better, especially weddings. I've had People ask me, well, you take really nice photographs. How would you like to take our wedding pictures thinking they can get a cheap deal? I said, no way. <laughs> that is, that's a make or break situation where you have to have all your shots. So, not all your shots, but a wide variety of shots perfect. And uh, that's a special skill. When I think of wedding photography, I think of this wedding we observed in ukraine where we dropped into this small church where a couple were getting married and they had only i think four or five people in the wedding party including the bride and groom and two or three seated and then the priest and uh, a trio of singers hidden off stage doing chant and uh, eastern orthodox russian orthodox uh, wedding ceremonies, very, very long and very complicated and interesting to watch. Um, but there was also a photographer and his female assistant, both dressed in the most raggedy, casual clothes, uh, getting in between the priest and the couple and dodging around and getting close-ups. Stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thinking, wow, it's not only Americans that can overdo the photography thing at a wedding.
1: Mm-hmm yeah
0: so you should hire a professional if you want a wedding although there have been uh, there's a a deal with that some people have done at one wedding I went to where they put a little cheap cardboard camera at each table at the reception and then asked the people to just take snapshots of the reception while they were going on, which is kind of a cute idea
1: mhm well it it gets all the um the pictures that were taken at the wedding in one place which is a difficult maneuver if you have a gathering of people um these days lots of cameras out shooting pictures uh we're always looking for a way to get those collected online i mean you can use shutterfly or or uh, flicker i guess and right. uh, you know some of these things where you can get a community together to post their photos but That's sort of the old school way if you just have a cheap camera put out on the table and say, leave the camera behind when you go. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been a while ago that that happened.
0: It was a while ago. <laughs> okay, so most of my shooting is landscape or candid portraits. Um, and in landscape, I'm going to include uh, close-ups of a tiny little mushroom plus uh, a mountain range. You know, So outdoors, nature subjects, essentially. And candid portraits is my term for just uh, what some people call street photography, although I rarely do it in the streets. But at public events... Uh, Just capturing pictures of people watching, acting, smiling, being goofy, wearing costumes, especially at Halloween, Um, all that kind of thing.
1: And you're talking about the traditional use of the terms landscape and portrait.
0: Yes, not the vertical versus horizontal orientation.
1: Right, which is a handy little way of describing the orientation of a photo. You're talking about literally shooting a landscape and literally shooting the portrait of people. Or candid portrait.
0: Right. And I tend to use vertical orientation. That is portrait orientation for a lot of landscape photography. For one thing, I'm often shooting in the forest and trees, and I want to get the height and I want a little sky up there and um, don't have a, a subject that I really want to take up the center. And so I'm often turning the camera 90 degrees to get that. I was just putting together a calendar of my photos. And I started realizing, boy, I don't have very many really great shots that are landscape orientation to put in this calendar. So um I've done all, all kinds of projects. I put a lot of pictures up on Facebook. We can create links to some of my projects. But um one of the first things I did after moving to Bainbridge Island and starting to get more serious about photography was um, – Creating a portrait of the island in the different seasons of the year, and this started as a very personal project. My father was quite elderly and had dementia, um, was not able to travel anymore when we moved, and I wanted him to have some sense of where we were and that we weren't in the old home that he knew about and had been to. And so I began taking pictures that fall. Of what it looked like, what our house looked like with the garden and the surrounding area and everything. And he was a great lover of nature and going for walks and stuff really got me hooked on getting outdoors, enjoying the woods and so on. Um, and then I made a book for him, an Apple hardband book, um, just depicting fall on Bainbridge Island and sent it to him for Christmas. And his caretaker would sit down with him almost every day and go through it page by page. And every day it was new to him. (laughs) But he really, really enjoyed it. And so I continued that project and did another book for winter. And by that time, I began to look at it and say, hmm, these are pretty good. I think maybe I could make a real book out of this. So, um Then I did spring and summer, so I had a a full cycle. So he had four books by this time. And then I decided to see, is it possible to publish a book? And I approached you about it. And Jim Lisey, who was at that time uh, the publisher, uh, volunteered his uh, services as a go-between to hook me up with a commercial publisher, commercial publisher. Place that does art books and photography books, and to get it printed in um, Malaysia. It wasn't published by William James, uh, but it was published thanks to William James, and I'm always very grateful for that. And uh, so it's sold a modest amount of numbers here on Bainbridge Island, and um, I give it away to friends and so on, but I still have boxes and boxes.
1: Them. is this something that uh can be ordered online
0: no um the only way you can get it uh, if you're not living around here is either contact me directly or eagle harbor books on bainbridge island will mail copies to any people that ask for them and they have a website mm. okay So that was a big project. Then there, um, even before moving here, we had met a couple who published a little handbook called Walks on Bainbridge, which is uh, places to walk, hikes, and also urban walks. Uh, with photographs and maps and descriptions of how to get there and what to see and so on. And this was published for the benefit of the Bainbridge Island Land Trust, which is a cause that's near and dear to my heart. But I didn't think much of the photographs that included. So I said, if you ever do a second edition of this book, I would love to do the photography. And they asked me to do that and it was a fabulous experience because they knew where I should go to take the pictures and, uh, there were a lot of places I wouldn't have discovered on my own very quickly. Uh, so I was running all over for a couple of months, uh, shooting various areas of the island and it was a great experience. And that has been a, a very nice seller for the land trust and, uh, it's, it's good publicity and i it's something I'm pretty proud of. The pictures didn't come out that great because they use a really cheap printer. Mm. So they're sort of fuzzy gray and white. And uh, one of the problems I had is that I, I learned from doing the first book that it's very important to get proofs that are printed on the same paper that the eventual product, the book will be printed on. And I could not get that. Instead, the printer misunderstood and used a higher quality paper to make the proofs and so the proofs looked satisfactory but then when the book came out it was much cheaper paper and the pictures were pretty washed out so one of the things i did was to put uh, sets of these pictures up online on facebook uh one set a week for a long time and say okay these are the originals of the pictures that are in chapter 17 or whatever they don't have number of chapters but in particular walk and um So you can see them. And if you want to know more about where this place is and how to take the walk, pick up a copy of Walks on Beverage. All of us worked for free. It was a volunteer, the person who made the maps and um, me and the layout person and everybody. Uh, So it was fun. That was uh, my first big project for the land trust. Since then, I've done a great deal of photography for them, annual meetings and hikes and uh, going out into properties that they want to conserve, that they need to have documented. Uh, I was sent out to one, which was mostly wetland, where my shoe got sucked right off my foot in the mud and the lens cap sank into the swamp and I never recovered it. So it's been sometimes a high adventure. Uh,
1: You mentioned getting a book done an uh, Apple book? Was that what
0: you said? Yes. Uh, using Apple's iPhoto, which is now called Photos. Mm-hmm. You can lay out a book, right in it. It's very easy to do, and it's extremely high quality. There are other places like Shutterfly that do similar things. Costco does them. Um, there's a lot of places that will do photo books for you, but uh, apples are the quality is superb and the flexibility of layout is just enough to give you, uh, some personal input, but they impose their aesthetics
1: on you mm-hmm.
0: and try to prevent you from making a really ugly book. There's a company in Seattle called Blurb that will let you tweak endlessly and, doesn't give you so much guidance and they're nice i've done one book through them and one of their advantages is if you want to sell your book without getting it printed ahead of time you can finish your project and then let them market it or you have to tell people about it but they'll put it in their store and then people who want to buy it they'll custom print a copy for anybody that that wants one mm-hmm. of course you get much less money that way Um, people don't realize that like for my photo book, uh, I get 60% typically of the cover price, uh, when I sell it. So the other 40% goes to the bookstore. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And that's a pretty typical arrangement. Now, um, for, um, blurb and for Apple books, the finished product is pretty
0: good. Yeah. They can look very handsome look very professional. There's a lot about it online. Often Apple is not great about giving you a lot of explanation about what you're doing. So often if I have a question, I'm having a problem. I just type it into Google and somebody elsewhere will have the answer to my question. But I always have to remember to specify what version of uh, photos I'm using. Now, I was talking about shooting in the woods. One of the great challenges of shooting in the woods is dynamic range because you have very dark, shadowy areas and very bright ones, especially if it's not an overcast day. There's something I haven't talked about that can be useful for that, and that is a polarizing filter. This works when there's direct sunlight with Indirect uh, reflections, polarizing filters cut down on reflected light so they can take the hot spots, the overly bright spots reflecting off leaves and needles and so on or bits of sky which are coming out. And there's a lot to be learned about how to use a polarizing filter. Well, and it's not something I want to go into in detail here, but it's worth investing in a good polarizing filter if your camera can have one. Now, I actually know a guy who buys sheets of the polarizing plastic and makes custom uh, polarizing filters that can be popped onto the front of a point-and-shoot. The problem is they don't screw on. Mm -hmm. And so when you retract the lens, it falls off. (laughs) But um, polarizing filters can be great. They don't work in all conditions, and they don't work when you're aimed directly at the sun or directly away from the sun. They're at their best advantage, 90 degrees from the sun. Shooting in the woods with a tripod helps. Uh, You can get a longer exposure if the trees are pretty still. There's not a lot of wind and uh, the other thing i do is often shoot in hdr now hdr high dynamic range is a way of taking multiple shots at different exposures and then blending them into a final finish shot which has more brights and more darks and a broader range in between than you could normally achieve even with a very good camera There are different ways to do this. Some cameras have, uh, like I have a little Panasonic point and shoot that has an HDR setting in it, and it just takes three quick photographs and then blends them automatically together. That's also the case with my Apple iPhone. Uh, I use the HDR setting in that all the time. I never turn it off, Uh, and it really produces a more satisfactory result. People complain about HDR a lot these days who know something about it in that many photographs end up looking extremely artificial when it's overdone. If you look at a travel brochure or an ad for a travel company and a slick magazine, and you see this uh, breathtaking photo that just has these eye-popping colors, and you think, wow, that's not like anything I've ever seen. It's probably not what the photographer saw either. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's possible with HDR to make things look bizarre and some people, especially when it was new, uh, really loved that look—the almost surreal or science fictiony uh, look of things. But it doesn't have to be. You can apply HDR in a in a subtle manner.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe a rule of thumb on that is if it's possible for the average viewer to look at your photograph, if they've seen this and they're they know enough to recognize that it's been used HDR, if they're going to look at it and say, ah an HDR photo, (laughs) you've probably overdone it. Right. It's a tool that can heighten what you've done, but it's also something that can ruin what you've done.
0: Right. I should mention the one time I do turn HDR off with my phone is trying to photograph a really fast moving subject um, because HDR takes up some time. It's pretty fast in the iPhone. Um, But If you want to avoid blur with something that's really moving quickly, then better not use the HDR. Now, my big camera, um, the Canon 5D Mark III, has an auto HDR setting like that where it takes the three shots and then one normal exposure, one darker, one lighter, combines them all three into one and does that automatically. I don't like the results. I think it makes lousy (laughs) HDRs. So there's another setting where you can just take multiple shots in what's called burst mode. And I shoot in burst mode a lot of the time. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. But anyway, you can tell the camera how many shots you want and make the dynamic range as wide as you want, dark to light. Typically, I do three. Um, and so you take the shot, click, 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 and the last click will be slower because that's the longest exposure. And then I go into um, Nick's HDR FX Pro 2, which comes with the Nick Filters uh, package that we talked about earlier, which is Downloadable free. There are lots of tools for editing HDR. Um, there's built into Elements. There's uh, one built into Photoshop, of course, and Lightroom and, and just about anything I think I'm not sure about photos, but um I really like uh, HDR FX Pro 2. It does a really nice job of uh, combining them. And it usually gives you an array of different possible combinations of the pictures you've taken. And you can just choose one that looks closest to what you'd like and then tweak it by sliding things. And this is fun for somebody who's creative and not technically inclined because you're really using your eye. And it takes a little while to learn which controls you should be doing. There's some good uh, videos on YouTube that tell you how to do this sort of thing. So if you're shooting in raw and HDR, you've got the maximum amount of range that you can deal with. And that makes it possible to be out in the woods on a bright, sunshiny day with sun filtering down through and dark shadows on the trees and make a very pleasant looking photograph, which otherwise you just couldn't capture. So one of the things also um, that you have to think about when you're dealing with the polarizing filters I was talking about before, to go back to that for a minute, um, they're often used to emphasize clouds and they make clouds look much more prominent. If you see clouds in photographs that just look eye-popping with the shadings in them are very prominent. That's usually the result of polarizing. And uh, if you like that effect, uh, that can be good. It can do amazing things in black and white, especially. But it's also handy for eliminating reflections in mirrors um, or in water. And if you're trying to shoot some goldfish underneath the water, if you have a polarizing filter and your angle is right and the light is right, without submerging your camera in the water, you can get pretty good shots of the fish. I had an interesting experience this spring where I spotted a rainbow as I was driving by this particular area, and it looked really spectacular. So I stopped the car, got out my camera, put it up to my face, and aimed it at the rainbow, and there was no rainbow visible. And I took the camera down looked up. There's the rainbow. It's still there. Put the camera back up from my face. No rainbow. And then I realized, oh yeah, I've got the polarizing filter on. <laughs> <laughs> uh so I just rotated it about forty five degrees and voila, there was the rainbow. So that's just a little tip. That's what you're doing is minimizing reflections. But sometimes you want reflections. You might be wanting to get an image reflected in a, a window. I often like to do that. I mean, a typical subject is a really antique-looking building with windows that reflect a very modern building, and it's windows. So you wouldn't want the polarizing to do it that way. Um The burst mode that I was talking about, if you don't have a tripod, that can also be handy. If I'm just trying to photograph a flower and I'm thinking, uh, this is gonna be tough. I'm not sure I can get it still enough. I can use very short exposures and then use burst mode. And if I'm lucky, see, I take four or five pictures, click, 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 click. Faster than that. Maybe one of them will be usable. It's important when you're shooting in nature like that to get great depth of field a lot of the time. Now, if you're focusing on, um, say, a perfect flower in the foreground and you want the background blurred, that's a different matter. But if you're shooting in the woods, probably a small aperture is going to be important uh, so that you can get that very deep depth of field. So uh, that means longer exposures and that means you should probably use a tripod. So if you're trying to do that kind of thing like a garden where you want to get a long sweep of something, uh tripod is a really good idea. The other thing about this kind of nature photography that tends to trip me up is remembering to adjust your white balance. If you're in a shady area, you're going to need a different white balance from in a directly lit area. And... So uh it does make a striking difference in your end product. Now, it's fairly easy to correct this in software if you know how to do it, but it's always better if you can get it right the first time. And when you have a combination where some areas are directly lit and some are shady, well... <laughs> One white balance may not work. You have to play around with it. But it's always good when you change your setting and you move to a different area. Check your white balance and see if it's appropriate for the particular thing that you're using. Is it uh, indoor fluorescent light? Is it incandescent light? Is it in shade? Is it cloudy? Is it sunny? Those are the main ones that you have to be concerned with.
1: Well, okay. That's all um, good. Now, is there more to say about this HDR business? I know that I've seen that phenomenon you're talking about where it's just overdone. Um, anything more when you know about that technical part of it?
0: Well, I think it's more aesthetic than technical. There's a lot to learn about the different tools that you can use, but ultimately it's an aesthetic judgment. It's something you look at. Now, it depends on what you're striving for. To me, when I look at an HDR photo that is um, really, really bizarre, I think that is just a different kind of art. You know, people are using their cameras as paintbrushes, as it were. They're creating something that doesn't exist in nature. Mm For some people, that's a sin. It's impure. You know, photography should represent the world as we see it through our eyes. I don't think so. I mean, look at, uh, microphotography, for instance, people who take pictures of, of single-celled animals under a microscope. That's not something you're going to see with the naked eye. And, um, Infrared photography, there are all kinds of different photography that lets us extend our view of what the world is like. So I'm not offended by it. But when somebody is presenting something and saying, this is an amazing place that I visited, and you can tell it was made much more amazing by the HDR technique, uh, then that is kind of cheating. And a lot of times they just look amateurish. They look uh, awkwardly overdone. Learning to use them subtly is uh, really important.
1: Yeah, and I think most professional photographers, uh, anybody who's been doing it for a while, doesn't really have the illusion, actually, that they are doing a pure representation of the real world. Right. Uh, many great nature photographers shoot and shot in black and white, for example, and we don't see in black and white. So they're using the effects to get – they're enhancing – what the eye is seeing and presenting it in a different way pretty much by definition the fact that it's cropped down that it's not the full scope of your vision all of these things are part of it i think it's just a matter of that hdr is overdone and i eh, it's just a gadget that people use but you have to know how to use it correctly i guess is your point
0: well I- you have to know what your options are. You may want to use it incorrectly. It just depends on what you're trying to achieve. But I think it's perfectly possible that these people who claim that they hate HDR could look at an HDR photo that's well done and not know that it was HDR.
1: Yeah.
0: That would be my goal is for you to look at it and say, wow, that's really nice exposure mm-hmm. and not have it pop into your head. Oh, that's another one of those HDR shots. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to talk more about uh, your experience with working with a camera.
0: Um,
1: But let's save that for another time, and uh, we'll wrap this up for now.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tom.
1: That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Air's and English Usage Book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, WMJASCO.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.